Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, CEOs and entrepreneurs that are changing the face of healthcare in the UK and beyond. As regular listeners will know, I am a CEO and co-founder of a health tech venture myself called PocDoc. PocDoc allows you to get the equivalent of the NHS heart health check using your phone anywhere that you want to in under 10 minutes. Thanks to PocDoc as ever for supporting the show. And if you want any more information, please go to PocDoc.co. That's P-O-C-D-O-C dot co. Thanks to everyone listening live on UK Health Radio this week. This is our last live show of 2023. So thank you very much for everyone who's been with us all year. Thank you also to Johan and the entire UK Health Radio team. It's been a fantastic year. We wouldn't have been able to do this without the whole team at UK Health Radio who've been fantastic. This is actually show 89 so far, which is quite a stretch. And, you know, here's to another 89. As ever, I remind everyone about this, that, that every show that UK Health Radio puts on is available on all of the podcast channels. So please check them out. And I'd like to say thank you to everyone who is listening to this show on the podcast. Um, so whether that's Spotify, Apple, Google or Amazon, we are everywhere and we have listeners from Colombia to China, from Saudi Arabia to Angola. So shout out wherever you are. Thank you very much for joining in. I don't know if you're listening to this as you are having a mulled wine and getting ready for Christmas, but thank you very much for listening. So. Uh, on to today's show. Today we have the effervescent Dr. Adam Abs on the show. So Dr. Adam started life as a GP, then became one of the first ever virtual GPs, then dove into the world of entrepreneurs. Then he wrote some books. Now he's chief medical officer at Hurdle Bio, which is a digital lab testing company operating in the United States and Europe. Adam is passionate about the huge opportunity digital technology gives to us to improve healthcare for everyone if it's done right. And one of the statistics that he likes to throw around is that the NHS could save over £69 billion in 25 years if they were to implement digital technology and prevention strategies properly. So, Adam, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, I'm, I'm great. I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. What, a, what an introduction. Well, you know, we do good intros on this show. <laughs> yeah, very good. Good. Where, which glamorous part of the world are you are you joining us from today? In beautiful Madrid. Oh, how is Madrid? It's jumbo weather, but it's actually English weather today. So it's grey and it's cloudy. But following today, it's, we've got 10 days of bright sunshine. So oh, fantastic. Like What's Christmas Monday. like in Spain? What's the run into Christmas like in Spain? Um, lots of holidays. So they they, they, they like their, their, their times off here, their festivos. Okay. Uh, and um it's uh, much 
much like the the rest of Europe and, and the UK and the US. So lots of lights in the streets and markets. Um, the streets are full. There's a great atmosphere. Um, yeah, it's great. Very, very Christmassy. Good. All right. Let's jump into it. So um, your journey has been quite interesting. And like, I know that we've wanted to get you on the show for a while. Um, you know, we've known each other for a little bit. And, you know, I think the show is going to be really interesting. So you started life off as a GP, straight, normal, hardworking, dedicated general practitioner. No, no, no. So I I started my GP life like that. But I following my well, when I was uh, choosing my A-levels, uh, a teacher told me that I shouldn't shouldn't do science because I um I wouldn't be able to do medicine because I was too soft and I'd cry oh. all the time. Oh, actually, yeah. So I was soft. So I I changed my my A level choices or IB choices and um, ended up studying at university um, for international business. Um, I tried that for a few months, realized it wasn't me, um, and then left university after a few months. Um, and went to where my parents were living, which is in the Middle East, um, to find what my next role would be in life. Um, and did all sorts of jobs there. So I, I was an English teacher, a Japanese teacher. I managed the, the housing compound that my parents lived in, trying wow. to do all sorts of different, different things at the age of 18, 19. Oh, a long time ago. Um, and then I got into marketing, then came back to the UK, trying to cut a long story short, um, and went into digital marketing. Then whilst I was doing that, did some volunteer work for a children's cancer charity um, and thought there's more to life than than, than than business. I want to make a difference. I want to people to remember me when I'm gone. You know, I want to really... <laughs> it's, a, it's a very happy thought, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so then I... Uh, decided to reverse the advice I was given about not studying medicine at A-level. So I did an access to medicine course. In, okay. in What's teaching. that? So it's it's a one-year course for people who don't have the right A-levels Okay. Um, to, to study medicine. Okay. Um, but they um, – so, so what it essentially does is it combines everything you need to do to get to the point where you can start a medicine degree. Okay it gets that down into one year it's a really condensed course fortunate fortunately for me being in king's, king's lynn the distractions were, were few so there was lots of lots of time to to focus on yeah. uh, on studying so I, I did that for a year uh, and then ended up going to the whole york medical school um and then and i was inspired initially I wanted to do on pediatrics oncology following following the children's cancer charity work then thought maybe that teacher was right maybe i am a bit too soft for this maybe it okay. would affect me too much then went into neurology love the idea of fixing things seeing problems really understanding a problem really working out where things need to where things are going wrong how we can fix them and then coming out the other end um okay so that that's something i carry with me still today um now, is that a particular aspect of neurology 
Neurologists are known for being quite um, pedantic in the details of things. In a good way, it, I assume. Well, it depends. Depends on your point of view. <laughs> um, but but they're, they're but they're, they're known for for really wanting to to really understand things thoroughly. If you go to see a neurologist, the consultation will be very very long. That they, okay. they ask lots of questions. They really want to get down to the nitty gritty of what's going on. Okay. More so than, than than most doctors, I would say. Is that because there's something unique about neurology that means that you have to do that? Or is it just chance that it's that way? Great question. Um, I think it's because of the complexity of the subject, um, which leads to those kind of people entering that career choice, and then it's a self-fulfilling right. prophecy. Right. Um and so that was my, I, I got inspired by uh, Dr. Ashok Ram. So a big shout out to a neurologist from, from Hull who really inspired me. Really me. Unfortunately, though, to his disappointment, I started my core medical training, saw the life of a registrar, medical registrar, and thought, I don't want to be one of those people who are six years into their medical career and still waiting for a consultant post, Okay, still doing shifts 24 hours a day in a hospital. Okay. So went into GP training. Okay. Because like, I th- what I find funny about that is like, you you selected GP training because it might be like slightly easier than the life of a registrar, which makes people realize how how difficult the life of a registrar is, right? Well, uh, absolutely, absolutely. I I really really admire the people who work in in, in well across medicine in, in in general, but particularly in 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 hospitals because the 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 amount of sacrifice that you you have to give um as a gp you in your training and uh your training so your your you have your three years of your gp uh st training and after that you can go anywhere in the country you want and yeah. start working immediately as a as a hospital doctor the that's much more restrictive so uh it's not that being a gp is easier but you have that flexibility to to make your own decisions about what you want to do with your career much more yeah what one of the things that baffled me um one of the reasons i like doing the show is like i like bringing people on like yourself and others who sort of lift the lid on things that you know we're a broad listener church there's lots of people that listen from lot from a wide range of backgrounds and one of the things that that actually blew me away was when we had ahmed sharabani on from locum's nest and um he his i don't know if you know locum's nest but they're sort of like a digital um nhs workforce marketplace nhs to nhs and initially i didn't get it when i sort of had first spoke to him in in life and then he he explained to me that the contracts within each trust area hospital trust area are so restrictive that if yeah. a doc a doctor is unable to work the the oxfordshire and buckinghamshire for example next to each other the stoke mandible hospital and the john radcliffe hospital are probably less than an hour's drive away from each other yet a doctor who is qualified and registered in one cannot work in the other and vice versa which blew me away quite frankly uh, absolutely absolutely the the, the restrictions that the, the placed on us um are are much much greater than people expect yeah why did why do you know why that why that it that why that restriction is in place oh great question no i don't know um i uh, i 
I think I suspect it's just because we the NHS in some ways is really advanced in in other ways, including its workforce. It's really, really um, quite behind. For example, I um, didn't work at a particular Manchester hospital recently for, for over a year. So that meant I had to go and present my papers in person, despite having worked there for 12 years in total. Right. I had to go back and represent my papers to them to say I still have these things. So your your physical qualifications you had to physically take to them, even though you had worked for them for twelve years. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, it's inefficient. It, it really is very inefficient and awkward for everybody involved. Um, well, you know, weekend in Manchester, no bad thing. No, no, absolutely. Got Couple to catch worse. some friends, so it was. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so you 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 were a GP. You 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 were GPing, so to speak, and then. I think you were probably one of the first or you were certainly early in the curve around virtual GP. Were you not like you were, you got very interested in it relatively early, I think. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was incredibly fortunate in my GP training. The, 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 one of the partners was also setting up a same day care center in North Manchester general hospital. And he asked me to be the lead GP on that. So I did that. Um, and that was an amazing experience, a great opportunity, got me to understand how things work in the NHS, got me to be able to um, to look at things from a, a completely open mind and a different perspective. Um, because often with, with, with medicine, we, we just do the way things have always been done if, when you work yeah. in the NHS. Uh, and this allowed me from the very start to question how things were done so instead of a, a gp instead of sorry a patient entering into an a e department we realized that the vast majority of these could be seen by gps so anybody who could walk into to a e was sent to the same day care center next door yes by a gp and if they were for a e they'd get sent to a e and it otherwise would be seen by a gp service which yeah. was much more efficient and and, and save a lot of money um why, why am i why am i telling you that when you asked me about uh uh the virtual gp yeah because the the flexibility that that job gave me meant that i could dip my toe in the water in doing video consultations and what was your view around video consults before you started to do them did you have one oh oh this is controversial because my view of them was was that there's not much that you could do that it was a new fad it was i i I was i wasn't you were in that camp you were like this isn't this isn't this is not the future at the beginning. It was more that it was, I, I didn't have a particularly strong view. It's just I was aware that generally it was seen as something that wasn't really proper medicine. Okay. Um, and I mean, this is the days before COVID-19. Yes, so which we, changed we quite Bab- a lot. Babylon and Babylon did amazing work in terms of move, moving things forward and Hats off to, to to everyone in the Babylon team for for doing all that work for us, um, but they but the view was it wasn't something you could do. What well, wasn't real medicine, so to speak. Hmm. The company I was working for was Medic Spot, so they gave me the first opportunity, and yep. they had this, these amazing. I don't know if you've you've ever seen it. I'll, I'll show you another time if if you if you haven't. So they had these kits. There were sat these boxes that were sat in pharmacies around the country. Yeah, they were like kiosks or booths, right? Weren't exactly. they? Exactly. Yeah. And you would go in, and that you would uh, the, the doctor would be on the other side, telling the patient how to take the blood pressure with a sphygmomanometer, sphy- sphy- check their temperature, 
look into their their ears and their throat with a camera, um, listen to their heart and lung sounds with a stethoscope, yeah. all linked via via video link. And it was amazing. It was really, really revolutionary stuff at the time. And I loved working there. And, and when I started working there, I realized, actually, there's quite a lot you can do. Right. Suddenly I realized that this could be the future, but I didn't think that whilst I thought it could be the future at the time, I didn't see that the world thought it would be the future at okay. that moment in time. I right. saw it as us trying to move the world forward rather than the world moving forward with us. Yes. So it was a bit of a challenge, um, but exciting. And I enjoyed everything from the interaction with the patient because the patient was often uh, really amazed with the with the, with the technology yeah really uh, engaged right really engaged yeah and, and also a little bit frightened about how do i do this how do i do that so part of the right. building the relationship with the patient at the time and and, and medicine whether it's digital or face-to-face or in any form is it is is largely about building relationships with patients yeah in whichever way it is whether it's giving them confidence in in the the product that you're you're presenting to them or if it's being nice and friendly to them in a face-to-face consultation. So part of the relationship building with the patient then was was telling them how to use equipment and sort of laughing with them that that was difficult or this was difficult, talking them through the process. And it was a pleasant experience for me, and it was a pleasant experience for them too. Cool. So just to pick back up on your mention of Babylon, right? So obviously Babylon had a fairly, um, I would say, controversial end this year. Yeah. Do you be, and we and we had one of the original backers, Chris Bischoff from General Catalyst, on a few shows ago. And w- is your view now, obviously, benefit of hindsight being twenty twenty and all of that, that it was the right vision, and and was it was it the right vision and the right thesis that they had just executed wrongly, or was it the wrong vision, wrong thesis, or was there some sort of combination of external factors that led to? it not succeeding as it quite could have done? Um, I think it's a, it's a cop-out to say it, but I think it's a combination. I, I, I think that they had such high expectations that they achieved more than anybody gives them any credit for. Right. But maybe they ran too fast. Okay. Um, and as, as they sort of ran ahead of the curve, and now the, the curve is a little bit more a mix of physical with digital mm-hmm. uh, and i think that maybe they neglected the the, the physical a little bit too much yeah um, well like the um like i think that that they could have been a really big telehealth provider without the ai piece of it and i think that those two businesses didn't quite merge together properly if that makes sense that's my take on it like you've you've, you've got some ai that's a digital front door and you can argue it could have been better. You could argue all kinds of different things, but it was sort of separate from actually the telehealth business. They're not necessarily the same thing. Uh, no, no, absolutely. And it's all about operating on in an ecosystem. The ecosystem is every single part of, of every, this app, that app, that app, this this physical clinic, a hospital. It's all part of the healthcare ecosystem, um, and it only works really well when you merge all of them together and appreciate that they all sit in a different place within that ecosystem. Trying Ooh. to go uh, go alone without integration, without being conscious of the other parts of the the system, um, d- doesn't and work. Do, and do you, I know that we'll come on to this because this is one of the things that's a bit of a bet noir for you. Um, is, is 
do you do you believe that some elements of the medical establishment gave that type of technology enough of a fair fair chance or not no i i i not at all no um i i think one of the the the, the achilles heel that we we still have is that so many of it's not just institutions but doctors on a on a doctor doc, by doctor basis um the doctors are, are way too skeptical of video or telephone consultations and they still see it just as triage right uh, and uh, and i think if uh, until doctors start start taking it seriously and have confidence in doing a real full video or telephone consultation as you would face to face then patients aren't going to buy into it either there was a really i thought there was a there was a study i don't know if you saw it a couple of weeks two or three weeks ago about like the risks of telemedicine or video consultations i don't know if you saw it i think it was it wasn't a very large study but it basically made the front pages and it was sort of like you know in some instances they may miss some things and it oh, was yes. sort of like the, 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 the conclusion was sort of the inclusion inferred by the media at large was sort of gp appointments need to be face to face and that actually to be fair to the people that wrote the study that wasn't actually what the study said if you read no. the abstract no, no it, was, it was it was but it was kind of distorted right and that's the danger in, in those small studies that, that, that people can jump onto a, a a tangent of the message that's in there but i, I with every, and I, uh, I wrote a remote consultation handbook um, a few years in 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 the midst midst of COVID. And one of the things that I put in that was that they a video consultation and any clinician in the video consultation needs to be very much aware of not only the possibilities but also also the limitations. So there are times when you say this isn't appropriate for a video consultation or telehealth right. consultation. Um, come in so yeah. you need to face to face and it's the same with with a triage system is it's, it's the same with symptom checkers they need to be aware at which point they say stop yeah help this is out of scope exactly this technology now if you have doctors who are too afraid to uh to do those undertake those consultations or to take part in somewhere or engage with those consultations then that's going to hold us back and we're not going yeah. to move forward. If or you similarly, if people use that technology blindly and there are mistakes and errors that happen because the technology has been used in situations where the technology shouldn't have been used, that doesn't help either. No, but when you say blindly, that I wouldn't put that responsibility on, on the patient, but on, on the on the people who deploy the technology. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, no, I completely, that's what I mean. It's like being honest about the limitations of whatever technology you happen to be using and understanding and writing making sure those pathways are correct so that there's no uh yeah there's no there's there's a limitation of risk exactly a absolutely because cool. both well, of the spectrum over over being over ambitious or under ambitious both are, are, are deemed a failure yeah so um my producer is is staring daggers at me oh, I see. and we have to uh we have to go to the first of two commercial breaks so we'll be back in two minutes with my guest on this week's show dr adam abs the medical lead at hurdle bio we'll be right back uk health radio the station that makes you feel good good 
Nature's Medicine for Modern Living, a people and plants dialogue hosted by Sophie.health. At Sophie, we bring together experts and voices who rarely cross paths. Our quest is to illuminate the ancient world of plant medicine and reimagine it for the connected age. Join us to explore new boundaries of digital personalized medicine with deep roots in the natural world and hear from our community of international pioneers who are validating this new paradigm and improving how we feel, sleep, and cope with daily stresses naturally. Sophie.health, reconnecting people and plants. Once upon a time, human slavery was just a fact of life. Right now, animal abuse is often considered normal. In time, it won't be. Animal Aid campaigns peacefully against all forms of animal abuse and promotes cruelty-free living. Check out animalaid.org.uk. It's time for a kinder world. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the second part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, your host, Steve Roost, CEO and co-founder of PocDoc, and my guest this week, Dr. Adam Abs, the medical lead at Hurdle Bio. Okay, Adam, so we kind of got through to the point where we got to covid and we were discussing these various bits of digital technology and how they can be used and all this kind of stuff. So what what was there was there kind of an epiphany for you during COVID about this technology and how healthcare systems should be thinking about this, like the, the possible opportunities that this opens up for us in the future as humans and us as healthcare systems? Or how did that? Because I know that you've done a lot of thinking around this space. Oh, um, big question. It, it, stress. Is, it, is, it is a really big question, isn't it? Um, I don't think there was epiphany. I think there was a the 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 first the moment that really changed the my hopes for digital medicine were when I was approached by a, a colleague, uh, Jacobo de Mertas in um, in Italy, and he asked me to. Uh, to to give a, a talk to his Italian GP colleagues on video consultations because okay. I I'd been doing them for a while and uh, and he said maybe you know more about this than, than the average GP and suddenly I realised well actually maybe I do yeah um, and I, I did this speech to to them and they were so keen to learn and so keen to know how to do a good telephone or video consultation that it made me realise that suddenly people wanted to know how to do this and how to do this well right so if and that was new that was new before we had a public who thought it was a gimmick and doctors who thought it was a gimmick mm. and we took huge leaps forward in 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 doctors taking it uh, taking it seriously um that confidence of that hope that i had hasn't sustained i i, I that's I've had moments when I've felt that we more confident in in, in my colleagues taking this on. And you mean and, you mean that the, your confidence that that like the kind of adoption peak that we saw during COVID, really out of necessity, has sort of receded. Yes, and the adoption 
but the adoption by by desire because okay. what we would like is for doctors and patients both to want to do a video consultation yeah so something that i used to in my clinical director years at medic spot something that i always used to, to, to say to our colleagues is what i would like is every patient at the end of that consultation to say wow that was a really good consultation yeah i'm happy with video consultations and we used to get patients who would come back and come back and come back and we get patients who would come back and see us every week sometimes for mental health problems yeah or every month or almost replace us as their main gp even though we were a a, a pay-per-view provider yeah. um because we would give them the time now actually the time that we gave them was 15 minutes but they see the doctor really, really engaged with them. And another technique I used to talk about with, with my colleagues is when the patient's talking to you, type the notes as they're talking to you. And if you still have notes left to type at the end, keep the patient on. Yeah. And talk about their cat, talk about their dog, have a general chat with them um, and make them feel listened to. Let them let them feel heard um, whilst you're typing up the notes. So you're listening to them. Actually, you've medic- medically you needed to know you've already heard. But you're giving that that time, that relationship building. Yes. So the patient, as opposed to when you go and sit in front of a GP and you're speaking to the GP and the GP is like this, they're typing and they're looking at you and you feel yeah. like not really listening. It's actually the same. It's just that on a video consultation, they don't. It looks like them. they're listening to you because you're yeah, staring exactly. straight at them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So okay. um, there are there are there are ways in which if we could get all doctors to want to use video consultations and we only do that by teaching them how to do it, then we're going to get patients who are going to be happy with the video consultations because they've had engaged doctors. How many, um, how many, what do you know what the percentage is at the moment in the UK about like delivery of GP appointments remotely versus in person? I haven't actually looked at the figures recently. Um, I haven't looked recently, but the the trend was, um, was, was, going down considerably uh, but now what's nice is that remote consultations the, the the term remote consultations is now diversified it was telephone then it was telephone and video but now it's also ai oh so like asynchronous type thing a- asynchronous or, or just symptom symptom checkers okay um, or ai where actually the report never reached the doctor maybe interesting the so so where where we're going to now is we, we went to video consultations and telephone and now we have our whole expansion into different types of do, different ways of doing medicine, which are remote, but on what two years ago we thought was remote medicine. Right. So the rate of change is actually quite rapid. That, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And how many, how much data do we have on the number of people who use symptom checkers? Well, I don't know if we've got anything. I imagine huge volumes of people use symptom checkers. If you could actually track it overall. You include NHS 111, you include the NHS website, you include patient knows best, you include God, goodness knows what else. I imagine like a huge volume, absolutely enormous. Exactly. And the ones we can't measure. So the private ones. Yeah. You know, what about those who are using Ada Health? Yeah. Shout out to Daniel Nathrath at Ada Health. Yeah, I, I listened to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, they're, they're um, yeah, they've been kind of like working steadily on this issue around digital doctor digital front door ai symptom checker ai triage for a really long time and just being i don't know quite humble about the whole thing i think it's amazing the, the number of uh, the the number of interactions that patients have with medicine at the moment their options are huge 
So it used to be that the GP would go along and sit and, 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 and speak to a GP, and that was their interaction with medicine, that single GP point. But now it's an app to measure your the changes in your period. Yeah. It's a symptom checker, like we were saying. It's a biomarker testing via a, a private biomarker testing company such as PopDoc or Hurdle. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it, it's a, a, a wearable such, a, such as a, a, something that measures your pulse. It's a continuous glucose monitoring. So how how I mean this you're right I mean the 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 amount of of the the ability that individuals have to interact with some kind of healthcare in the broadest sense if you take that really broad definition like you just laid out is 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 unprecedented unparalleled growing every day pretty much probably at some exponential rate but are the healthcare systems taking advantage of that or, no. or is it sort of passing them by and happening without them? Great question. Um, my favorite one so far. So <laughs> I'm glad to see it. it took, took me 35 minutes to warm up. We're hitting, <laughs> yeah. our, we're hitting our stride now. Well, you, you, might, worry about you it. might have an even better one at 45 minutes. The, um, uh, this is where I think the NHS is, is, is really missing an opportunity because the NHS still has this paternalistic approach between NHS and doctors and, and, and patient where the the NHS and, the, and doctors control a patient's access to healthcare. Now, uh, the, the the multiple there's a huge complexity as to a patient's access to their records and who owns the records and who has the rights to do what with their records. I understand that, but what what about generated patient data? So, if a patient wants to know what their cholesterol levels are. Why isn't the NHS helping them to get that information without having to speak to their GP? Yeah. Why aren't they going well, to a pharmacy? Not, not just speak to the GP, but oft, often the GP has to approve for the test to be taken or to be done. Exactly. Or even even worse in some ways, the, the on that note, they go along with a, a private cholesterol test to their GP. The GP looks at it. And I remember my GP trainer telling me this. When you get a private test, you must always repeat it because yeah. you don't know if that test can be trusted. Now, that's a huge waste of resources. Mm -hmm. What happens if Mr. Smith, who never engages with healthcare, is nagged by his wife to take a testosterone or cholesterol test privately? Shout out to our, our colleagues at, at Newman for their testosterone tests. Yeah. And, and then they go along to their GP practice with what is a clinical standard testosterone test and which shows they have a deficiency or cholesterol test which shows they have an excess and the gp says i can't trust that because that's a private from a, the private sector so we need to repeat it now yeah. mr smith doesn't have time it's only because his wife forced him to take the test that he took the test he doesn't go back he doesn't engage with healthcare again his but so, and also then at that point it triggers a multi-stage process because there's a very good chance that that person won't be able to have that test done on that day Right, because they'll have to they have to come back in and arrange for lobotomy and have the blood taken and come back in again. And I think the the one thing that I've noted, the one thing that that has occurred to me is that there's a um a very well documented program that's that's spoken about quite rightly um as being extremely successful. And it's an NHS born and bred program, and it is extremely successful. And they should be rightly proud of it, which is blood pressure at home, BP at home. Okay, so. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's really successful. So on average, annually, there's anywhere between two and a half and three million individual blood pressure readings being done by individuals at home with their own blood pressure machine and texted or phoned or emailed in to surgery, to GP surgeries. Okay. Very eminently sensible, eminently efficient. They do not even provide a list of what device to use. You, You can just buy one a cuff blood pressure monitor privately. And so I feel like sometimes there isn't an apples for apples comparison here. So on the one hand, there's a hugely successful program that where individuals are generating blood pressure data themselves at home, which is complete with with any cuff monitor, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But then to your point, a booper laboratory without picking a number, but, but a booper or whoever laboratory test won't be trusted and may need to be repeated. Those two things don't seem to be an apples to apples comparison using the same logic set for me. No, not at all, because who knows where that blood pressure cuff is from. Absolutely. But I'm, I, I look, just to be clear, I think the blood pressure at home is the direction we need to go. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm a fully supportive of it. I think yeah. let, let's just be a little bit more equal in, in how we evaluate these things. Like if, if that's okay over there, then why wouldn't it be okay to apply a similar logic over here? One hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. The, uh, the uh, we have the the systems that we've put in place over the last year to make sure that all the medical copy is audited, to make sure that every single test that comes through goes through a filtering process, to make sure that the stability data is correct, that it's it's been the the time between taking the test and the sample being run is is in a in a window which we know is accurate. That the correlation with Venus is high enough that the success rate of the test, because sometimes in any any in any situation a test fails, even in a hospital when, when you're doing a user needs, um, the 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 quality of the lab. So is 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 the, is the lab UCAS accredited? The the processes to get the results of the patient um, is it GDPR compliant? Is all the ISO qualifications? We have everything in place, that which and we're completely open about everything that we do. So it is the it could not be any clearer. It could not be any. Uh, we can't have any more accreditations or anything else to say how accurate this test is. But still, we get patients who go to the GP, and the GP wants to repeat the test in in the NHS. And I think and, what's interesting, and people don't really talk about this very much, is that. When people talk about lab testing, what, what what they really mean is different different diagnostic machines in different locations, right? There, there isn't some like magic lab that you it's it's a it's a building or rooms that contain diagnostic machines that are purchased from manufacturers who make really big diagnostic machines, and there's variation between machines and between laboratories. Absolutely. And 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 that's okay like that that's just that's just the way of the world so it doesn't actually necessarily mean that the lab that the sample the gp sends it to is more or less accurate than the lab that was used to process the sample through a private laboratory it doesn't necessarily follow no and it may it may be the other way around you know there may be a uh, an unfortunate delay in the sample being sent from the gp it's just a very i don't know it's a very sort of broad brush approach to say this good that bad I think it's public's good, private is bad. 
Um, and what we're doing by telling patients that they have to go back to an NHS lab is essentially saying to them, don't be curious about your health. Don't take control of your health. Don't pay for it yourself. Um, and, and don't think that, that you have a say over what happens to your health. We're, we're taking all the power away from patients. And, and I think that's a real shame. And, and I think it's costing the NHS more and it's costing patients health outcomes. Yeah, I mean, we, we at PocDoc, we've we've we spent we spent a huge amount of time working with the NHS, with the NHS colleagues, to to establish our role in the system. And you know, we've we've very we've we've seen a huge amount of success as a complement to laboratory testing. So laboratory testing is very geared around a bricks and mortar infrastructure. Somebody going somewhere to have a blood sample taken to then be sent somewhere else. Whereas community based, home based lab testing in the way that that is is geared around bricks and mortar doesn't really help with that you can't take a venous sample at home or it's very 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 difficult or costly to do so or in community centers and if you want to reach certain groups of people you have to have the right technology and the right approach and the right patient engagement to actually reach those people um you know and so yeah they're 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 we've been very lucky in the nhs groups that we've worked with that there's been sort of like-minded individuals who are more focused on how do we reach the groups that were previously hard to reach and get them engaged using a different diagnostic approach than this approach, which is, well, everyone has to go to a specific bricks and mortar location, otherwise cannot pass go. You've been doing some great things. You've um, you need you need to write a guide to to enter the NHS for. for... <laughs> I tell you what, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know. We're not done yet, so um, we'll 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 keep the book on ice. So um, we are going to go to our final commercial break now, and um, we'll be back with the final part of the show. And just Adam, when we get into it, I want to dig into this figure that you threw over in your in your pre-show notes, which was sixty-nine billion saved over twenty-five years. So. I don't know if you need to get your pencil out and get get refreshed with that one, but we'll dig into that one in the final part of the show. Um, yeah, so we'll be right back after two minutes with my guest this week, Adam Abs, the medical lead for Hurdle Bio. We'll be right back. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. When you vacation with Norwegian Cruise Line, Every day is a new day. Get a taste for Barcelona, then savor incredible dining options back on board one day. Connect to ancient history in Athens and then disconnect completely in our spa another day. Wherever the sea breeze takes you, come aboard and experience a different tomorrow with NCL. Visit ncl.com, call your travel agent, or Call 0333-336-1472. Norwegian Cruise Line, Ships Registry, the Bahamas and USA. Apples and pears, beef and skittles, cider with rosy, common or garden, ant and deck, fish and chips, mum and dad. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle Magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle Magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at ukhealthradio.com. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. 
Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest this week, Adam Abs, Dr. Adam Abs, I'm sorry, of um, Medical Lead at Hurdle Bio. So, um, Adam, before we jump into this, I, this, this figure that you threw around that the NHS can save over 69 billion over 25 years with better integration, adoption of digital technology, how does, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but how does Hurdle Bio kind of play into this space? And I know that they're doing some great stuff. Shout out to Tom Stubbs and Charlie over there. Um, what What's their kind of role in this ecosystem and, and, and the work that you've been doing? And then let's jump into the 69 billion piece. Great, sure. Uh, so thanks for the opportunity to talk about Hurdle for a moment. They um, So the way I describe it, it's not what the marketing guys describe it as but it's we deal with everything from from the test request to the test result so ordering a test online seems quite a simple process but what happens when you have to consider the the actual request uh, the the data in, in, in the safety of the data throughout the entire process but from requesting the test and then the test then needs to go to the fulfillment center the fulfillment center sends the test to the patient the patient then sends the test. The, the patient needs to be educated on how to use the test. They need to be educated on the consequences of using the test and what the results might mean. Then the test goes to the, the lab. Then the result goes to the partner and to the patient. And the patient needs to be educated on the, on the results. So what Hurdle do is manage the entire process. So there are several partners in there. There's a fulfillment. There's the postal to the lab. There's postal... Uh, from from the fulfillment center to the patient. Um, there's the the lab itself. There's the patient. There's the website. So the hurdle is the infrastructure mm. that makes this all fit together. Yeah. Um, and how do we differ? How do I like to think that we differ from 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 other partners in the same space or that other biomarker infrastructure? um companies in the same space is the, the the systems that we've put in place to ensure the quality of everything from making sure that the, the kit has the appropriate accreditations uh, making sure that the information to the given to the patient is easy is understandable learns from previous feedback from patients making sure that the 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 test is trackable from the, the moment it's sent to the moment it's received, making sure that all the data from the labs is is filtered. So labs, um, a, a lab may change the, the units of a, of a particular biomarker mm. at any moment in time without telling the partner. Right. And what Hurdle do is they sit in the middle, and when that comes through, if there's any variation, Hurdle say, hang on a minute, that's there's something wrong here. Yeah. Other um, automatically filters it out. Or it will flag it for a human review, and that will go back to the lab. What the partner receives is perfect, consistent results every time. 
Um, and what Hurdle does is in the middle is they deal with the headache so the partner doesn't have to, and they speak to the labs and they coordinate everyone else in the process. Makes sense. A lot of work there. A lot it going is, on. Yeah. Well, like we say internally, if, if it was easy, then, then then our partners wouldn't need us. That's a very good very It's good a good point. job, it's difficult, so we can't complain. Yeah. That's a good point. So let's talk about this big old figure of how much the NHS you think could save and how you kind of got to that point. So I know this is an area that you spend a lot of time thinking about. So talk us through it. So this isn't me. This is from the BMJ. Um, I've just emailed you the... the you've the just part. shifted. You've just completely passed the buck there. I have, I have. But, but it, it's there. It's, it's BMJ Open Research. So anybody can have a look. Um, and it was published, it's actually three years old, uh, the, the research. Okay. Um, and the title of it is, What are the cost savings and health benefits of improving detection and management for six high cardiovascular risk conditions in England and economic evaluation? Mm-hmm. That's and, a mouthful. What, they, they, they definitely know how to write a title. <laughs> they do. So it's essentially <laughs> saying, if we could improve detection of patients at risk of CVD, how much money could we save? Yeah, I mean, well, there, there's a ton of research in this space. That, like, uh, yeah, like the kind of, yeah, there's just yeah, the t- anyway. Carry on. There's just a, there's a ton of stuff in this space that means it's kind of pretty obvious that we need to be out there trying to figure out how to find more cases. Absolutely, um, and I I think the so th- this was essentially said that 68 billion could be saved, 4.9 million qualities gained, and 3.4 million cases of CVD prevented over 25 years if everyone who was at high risk was identified as being at high risk. Right. Um, and I, I something that links this to 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 Potdoc and and to, to Hurdle and other people in, in the same in the same space is one of the challenges we have with digital health is the evidence. Yeah. Now everybody's saying let's provide the evidence. So let's let's prove that uh, the number of GP appointments that are required drops by 25% when you use the symptom checker. For example, yeah, or or, or or let's say that we can reduce blood pressure in in X number of people if we increase the amount of um, blood pressure checking that takes place through this the service that you talked about. Blood pressure at home, blood pressure at home. That how Dr. Shahid Ahmed. For, yeah, excellent service, uh, a, 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 amazing idea. I'm surprised I hadn't heard of it before, but things like that. The problem that we have with uh, or a challenge that I think that we all everyone in the space needs to try to overcome is. How do we prove the benefits of the conditions which are chronic? So the patient education services, the um, the patient informing services. So let, they're letting patients know that they have high cholesterol. We need somebody to do the maths. And we need, in, in reality, we need the time to be able to say that if we improve access to cholesterol testing at home, or if we improve, if, if, People start using pot dog cholesterol tests at home. Yeah. How many lives will we save over 25 years? Now we'll only know that in 25 years. So, but we can't wait 25 years to start no. investing in re- in in the benefits of newer preventive. I, 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 we've always been convinced, you know, have, since we started, it didn't really matter. If you were focused on whether it's cardio, metabolic. So type 2 diabetes, renal, chronic kidney disease, anything that's largely considered to be preventable, right, in the kind of broadest sense. Um, not really talking about cancers, not really talking about other things like that, more more sort of cardiovascular 
you know, type two diabetes, chronic kidney disease, things that have a direct correlation with the way that you live your life for the most part. There are exceptions, obviously, genetic and things like that, but for the most part are preventable. Then the diagnostic test is the beginning of the pathway. Exactly. So, and, and, and yes, testing people more efficiently in greater numbers at lower cost is absolutely a priority without question. And I think, and I'll, I kind of have a lot of sympathy in this instance with GPs particularly because what they what what they're not worried about in my experience is this idea of testing more people okay they're not they're not worried about like they're okay with the idea that you test in the community they're okay with the idea that people test at home they're, they're not worried about that where they have a concern is that they see a disconnect between a cholesterol test value being generated somewhere anywhere and what happens next to that person if that result is elevated and yeah I, and i think it's that we've spent a huge amount of time from the beginning but but it's now sort of paying dividends on exactly what those pathways are so yes a test has to be part of it like those there are gating tests for each one of those pathways whether it's the lipid panel whether it's hba1c whether it's you know creatinine and so forth but w without that follow-on pathway, then that diagnostic test is a bit like a tree falling in the forest. It's exactly like I was saying at the start. Every single thing that we're doing in the health space needs to be part of the ecosystem. So if you do it in isolation, it's going to fail. But if you build it into the ecosystem, then then the, then you'll see the benefits. Yeah. But the challenge is getting people to invest or people to accept or take on board or to trial something which... A needs to fit into an ecosystem, so you won't realize the benefits until it fits in there. And 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 B is preventative medicine, so you won't actually see the benefits for a good number of years. And we're just extrapolating on the data to be able to say that that could help in future. Yeah, I think weirdly, the NHS is in a good spot, potentially better than some instances in the US and think other places where there's a private insurance model, because the you the 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 nhs is the sole provider and sole payer and has a sort of infinite time frame if you like so it should be more interested and able to invest in prevention now because it will pay off in a in a kind of future scenario whereas you know in an insurance based model where where individuals churn policy every 2 years or 3 years then that might become someone else's problem the entire time exactly uh, the NHS has a huge opportunity to have, to have huge benefits from from taking this on. It's that challenge of ecosystem and and proving the the cost benefit. Yeah, and and I think it's 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 a question of buy in from all levels. So it's it's very easy in the NHS, in my experience, not being a clinician, but but coming into it from a non clinical background, to end up in a situation where you've upset somebody by accident sort of by saying something or doing something or not understanding something there's lots of sort of groups of people that feel differently even about the same issue and i think it's like having some signposting and some direction around what the big priorities are and having that direction fed all the way through from the all the way through from 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 hospital care through to you know the, the through to primary care secondary care community everywhere through has the similar types of priorities i think it's going to be really really critical 
Um, because having different groups of people feeling differently about things isn't necessarily um helpful to make it easy for businesses to grow and to encourage investment into the space and to um encourage investment into R and D and all that kind of stuff if it's all a little bit higgledy piggledy. Exactly. Is that why you invest so much time in in, in the Pop Doc Road Roadshow? <laughs> yeah, I well, I think it's well, you know, we're lucky in that we're we're covering cardio, metabolic, renal all of those spaces so we're in very and, and 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 we've got a very clear product differentiation and those kind of things but but even so it takes a lot of time to go and talk to everyone and speak to everybody and 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 and, and get everyone on the same page even though technically on the in the nhs 10-year plan it says cardiovascular disease is the single biggest priority of prevention and so forth yeah you know deal, yeah. But, but then you, you speak to gp surgeries who are struggling with de- just dealing with the 8 a.m appointment rush exactly. and you know they've got different priorities kind of rightly so anyway last couple of minutes of the show adam so before we go i always like to ask someone very quickly what advice or what kind of mantras have you used in your career to kind of keep yourself going through you know to stay on mission or to stay motivated or what kind of advice would you give to anybody what you know maybe someone had went through a similar situation to you and is looking at a career change or i don't know what wise words would you like to leave the audience with oh um wise words i don't have many of those i've used all all them up in the in the last hour okay but i would i would try to try to get across the 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 the, the need for getting clinical advice throughout a product life cycle from 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 idea stage through to to it being rolled out um the 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 problem that we have is we see products that are being launched that aren't clinically credible that there's no clinical need for them there's no market it's not or it's not safe um right. and i think if you are you wouldn't build a car without speaking to a driver would no. you so so clinical advice um I, I think if you get a clinician to to really sit beside you when you're developing a product not in front of you to block you from doing it but to show you the way to get it to success um i think having that clinical voice next to you is is, is key to success I mean, cool. and you, you've got several people who who give you advice at potdoc um it's i mean engaging nhs clinicians in how we've built our product has been critical so um on that note adam we've reached the end of the show thank you so much for coming on pleasure thank I you want to wish everybody listening a happy christmas with you and yours and a happy new year and a good start to 2024. But Adam, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. People dream high in the quiet of the night. You know that I caught it. Bad, bad boy, shiny toy with a price. You know that I 